The following was recorded in front of a live studio audience at the Studio 21 Podcast Cafe. This is the United Podcast Network. The following program is closed captioned for the thinking impaired. By tomorrow, I will rule the world! <laughs> We got the dental pot and stuff up there. That's awesome. All righty. Going to get our video. I have to recut another video open for the show. Hi, how you guys doing? My name's Tom Duggan. I'm on the Paying Attention podcast every Thursday from 2 to 3 here at Studio 21 Podcast Cafe. Hi, atop Two Guys Smoke Shop on Route 28 in Salem, New Hampshire. I want to thank Dave Garafalo, Two Guys Smoke Shop, for helping us get launch this uh, this little project. We did the Paying Attention radio program for about 20 years on WCCM, WCAP. Did a couple of um, Boston channels on WTTT Salem Communications, WEZE, WROL. And now we've kind of got a um, an adaptation of the Paying Attention program on podcast. So you can watch us on YouTube. We only have like five people watching us on YouTube. <laughs> Nobody really wants to watch it. They want to download it. We had, uh, what do we have, Jonathan? Like 18,000 downloads? Yeah. 18,000 wow. downloads on the, on the uh, audio. So you can download us on, Pod, on Podbean, uh, iHeartRadio, iTunes, uh, Spotify, Google Play, and I'm sure I missed one. But I think Spreaker is the other one. Spreaker? I've never even heard of that. I'm on something I haven't even heard of. That's pretty good. It's big with the millennials. Yeah. They, All love, right. they love the speaker. All right. I'm going to have to check that out. Um, we don't have a Paul Morano here today because we have a special guest. Um, he is a gentleman that um, uh, we did a whole bunch of debates in the last Essex County Sheriff's race. There's like 13 people or something like that, like nine people running for this job. And um, out of all of that, out of all of the debates and the campaigning and everything, one guy emerged victorious. His name is Kev- Sheriff Kevin Coppinger. We want to start off before we introduce him with uh, just showing you a little clip of one of the debates that we did and some of the stuff that he said about the opioid crisis. And then we're just going to launch right into letting him talk about it because the opioid crisis is just getting bigger and bigger. It's getting more and more uh, um, play in the media. It's being more focused on by the president, by the administration, by law enforcement. So let's hear what Kevin Coppinger had to say when he was candidate Kevin Coppinger, and then we'll, we'll go right into uh, some of our questions and introduce him. Uh, all right, Chief. Um, I think the sign of how are you going to make good things happen is what have you done to date? And that's where I think I separate myself from the pack. During my tenure as chief, I'm a big, I've been a big proponent, and I will continue to be, be a big proponent of prevention initiatives, intervention, as well as treatment and rehabilitation. In terms of the prevention the initiatives I've already done during my seven years as chief, there are many. I piled up with District Attorney Jonathan Blood to establish a program in our middle schools aimed at the uh, at-risk youth. There may be some substance abuse in the home, some domestic violence, whatever it may be, but we work with the kids on an after-school program trying to teach them good choice making, a good decision-making skills, going out there, whether it's dating, bullying, drug abuse, whatever it may be, we work with the kids um, two or three, day, three days a week with police officers in the classroom with them and using an evidence-based curriculum to teach them decision-making skills. I've also initiated a youth teen drop-in center on the weekends where kids can come down to the Lint Tech Field House and we have, we have police officers there, we work with the kids, it's a safe environment play basketball, play badminton, wiffle ball, whatever it may be, a safe haven for kids to come, and we actually work with them again with the so 
created a behavioral health unit inside of the police department in cooperation with, with Attorney General, then Attorney General Martha Coakley's office, where I was able to obtain a grant. Behavioral health unit is three civilians, two clinicians, and experts in substance abuse and mental illness, as well as a caseworker in the same field. They gave them office space in the police department, they walk on the street, they work on their offices, and a preventive measure to get individuals who are at risk of overdosing and or mental illness to get the individuals into the proper care that they need, whether it be the mental health experts or health care before they into the criminal justice system. It's a win-win for both sides. Get the folks into the care that they need, let the police officers do what they have to do as police officers, reduces the folks going into court, which subsequently reduces the individuals that go into the county house of correction. We have, um, I have other school resource officers, other programs we do what we do with the kids. So I'm going to take those same skills and that same history of having successful initiatives and when you become sheriff, use similar programs up at the jail. We can look at the programs they have. One of the first things that I'm going to do when I get up there is call for an audit. Not, not only financial audit, but an audit looking over the operations of the jail. Let's see what works and what doesn't work. Let's expand the programs that are good and let's get rid of the ones that, that are outdated. We need to make sure that these are better things. And talked about reentry, and that's a good point. I'm sure we're all going to talk about reentry. It's another program I put in with a company called ROCA. There is a nonprofit out of Chelsea, tremendous track record of helping individuals when they come out of the jail, specifically 18 and 24 year old males who commit most of our crime. When they come back into the community, they work with 50 of our identified individuals in Lynn, um, and they help them keep on the straight path. They sign a contract that they won't do drugs, they won't recommit crime, they won't, they won't use alcohol. Roger interns, gives them job skills, gives them social skills, social service skills, how to be a good citizen, how to interact. Then they'll give them a job, and they'll watch them, making sure that the job is there, they show up for the job every day. The jobs are often out of, out of Lynn, we over in Chelsea or Boston, which is nice because it gives them a, a better opportunity to succeed. You have to give them the initiative, you know, that they want to succeed. Roker's motto is less jails, more future, and I think that's important that we need to do that. All right, thank you, uh, Mr. Jonathan. So um, you started as the Lynn police, you were a Lynn police officer, uh, you became the Lynn police chief, and we just heard a whole litany of programs that you um, have worked with, that you've, uh, that you've liked, some that you maybe you didn't like, and, um, and some of the things that you want to bring to the Essex County Sheriff's Department. Um, why don't you start with like introducing yourself to people, kind of give them a little bit of a flavor for who you are, and then we'll talk about some of that stuff that you just talked about. Okay. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for the invite, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I actually forgot about that, uh, that interview, so uh, it was a good, good refresher. It was a good debate. Yeah, yeah it was a very good debate, um, but that was kind of a summary of what, uh, what my, uh, my goal was, my mission was as police chief. But um, to back up a little bit, like you just asked, um, you know, I served the Lynn Police Department for 32 years. Before that, I was a police officer in Linfield. For, for three, and I transferred over. Uh, came up through the ranks, served a lot of different jobs, mostly in uniform and the patrol and then administrative, um, up until I was chief for the last seven and a half years before I decided to run for sheriff. Um, I love the city of Lynn. I still live there, born and brought up there. Um, but Lynn, like any community, um, is affected by this opiate epidemic. And let me just rephrase that, substance abuse epidemic. Um, it's everywhere. Um, Back in Lynn, we started actually tracking this epidemic back in the 1990s before it was the, the high topic of, of the media. Mm -hmm. um, we saw trends where folks were overdosing, uh, particularly mixing with prescription medications, and we tried to get out in front of it as best we could. 
Um, but like most of um, the Northeast United States, and now it's spread even worse, you know, back in the early, you know, 2010, 2012, it started to just explode with the heroin epidemic and obviously fentanyl and cough fentanyl. So um, I'm certainly no expert, but I, uh, I'm the type of guy I like to ask questions. If I don't know something about a particular area, I like to go to the experts and ask them and tap their brains and get mm -hmm. as much information as I can. So um, as you heard in that, in that video, um, I've always been a big proponent of the, the three initiatives, prevention, intervention, and treatment and rehab. Um, in my role as chief, um, you heard mention about the prevention pieces of it. Um, I think that's huge. This epidemic, um, as you said during your opening comments, um, it's not going away. It's expanding. We've slowed it down a little bit, collectively, not just us, but collectively society. But um, we haven't found a solution to it. I, you know, I think this is just a temporary um, hiatus, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to continue until we, we get better. To me, um, it takes all three of those phases, but we really need to focus a lot on prevention. Um, can, I, can I just ask you about prevention? Because it's, it's, it's one of the things that's kind of a pet peeve for me. Because um, I go to a lot of ribbon cuttings and a lot of political things and, um, you know, grants that get given out for prevention of bullying, prevention of this, prevention of obesity. It seems unmeasurable when you're talking about prevention. Like, how do you measure what you've prevented? And so I'm, I'm always kind of skeptical when people in government talk about spending money on prevention. Do you guys have a way of measuring some of the prevention programs that you have as to how effective they might be? Um, it's not that scientific. It, a lot of it is your gut. Um, and I, when I say prevention, you just mentioned a number of different areas where we have all these programs. Mm -hmm. What we always try to, to strive for is when we work with the kids, teach them good decision-making skills. That's going to get them across the board, whether it's, you mentioned bullying, it could be dating, it could be substance abuse, it could be picking your friends or whatever else. It's good decision-making skills to hopefully that, when they, especially in, as they get into those adolescent years and teenage years, it clicks in the brain as the brain develops and then they become productive and, and honest you know, human beings. So um, it's difficult. Can you ignore it? Can, well, can you um, measure it? Not really. Remember the old DARE program going way mm -hmm. back when and it kind of went by the wayside? That sure. was some of the opponents would say, you, well, you can't measure what you what you prevented. That's true. Yeah. But um, I'm a firm believer if you save one, you've saved, you, you've, you've been successful. Right. So when you look at these kids and even what we did when I was chief in Lynn, um, you see them coming through and you see them, you know, evolving into productive human beings. Now, on the other side of that, um, you know, during my off time, I did a lot of coaching of Little League Baseball and, you know, and when my kids were little. And I could see some kids that would not participate in some of these prevention programs. And over the years now... Those I, are usually the kids that need it the most, right? Yeah. And, and over the years, and some of these kids ended up in correctional facilities. Right. You know, and I saw them come through, you know, my career. I saw them involved in, in the police and then obviously in, now corrections. So I'm a firm believer it helps. And in the more information you can get out because... Kids, like anything else, they, they emulate what they see, what they hear, and, and they're always looking to, to be ex, you know, experiment with different things. They're inquisitive. Right. And if you can talk to them, we'll open up a line of communication, whether it's mom and dad, school teachers, a, a sports coach, police officer, radio host, newspaper, whatever it is, you can get their attention. You just keep hitting them with the messages, good decision-making skills. Right. And if you can combine that with some of the other stuff where you send these little subliminal messages about anti-drug, anti-drinking, whatever it is, I, I, I think it works. You know? All right. I, I apologize for cutting no, you off. No. You knew you were on a roll on your three. Yeah. No, and you know, I mean, you can cut me off anytime because I can speak for hours on this Excellent. stuff. Excellent. That's just, why we like you. That's just, why you're a great guest. I, uh, you know, I, I, I just left before here. We were down in Saugus talking to the Rotary Club about, you know, we'll get into it, I'm sure, with what we do at, at the Sheriff's Department now. And 
And the f folks were coming up afterwards. They're like, I didn't know this. I didn't know that. It's just there's mm -hmm. not enough education out there on the overall right. problem and getting to what you said again in your opening. How do we how do we address it? How do we continue to try to find solutions? So right. prevention we talked about. I think it's great. You got to go after the kids. I mean, they're our next generation. They're our, they're tomorrow's leaders. They're, you know, they're they're also going to pick our nursing home someday. So we got to make sure we keep them on track. Right. Um, but you know that that's just goes with a no a no brainer. I think is just send those messages to the kids. The uh, intervention piece with the law enforcement piece. I'm obviously. 30 ideas as a cop. I believe in that stuff. You, you got to go out. You got to investigate. And you, you were a beat cop, too. You weren't just one of these guys that sat behind a desk or answered phones. You, no, were, I, you, you were out there wrestling with people. Yeah, no, I, I, did my, I did my time on the streets, and I came up through the ranks, mm -hmm. and, and uh, uh, I did a lot of uniform stuff over the years. And, uh, um, and I also worked in a small town. I was a cop in Linfield, as I mentioned before. So I saw a small town, and I saw City Lynn, a good-sized city. Um, and I can tell you this. I've said it 100 times. You know, this substance abuse issue does not discriminate against anybody. Rich, poor, black, white, brown, you know, straight, gay, Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, whatever it is, it affects everybody. Mm -hmm. And um, some folks might not want to believe it's in their, in their town. It's there. Yeah. It's, 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 it's everywhere now. It's such, a, such an issue. So um, it's there. So you, you have to do the investigations. You have to have police work together at all three levels, local, state, and federal. You've got to pull your resources. You've got to, you know, cooperative, collaborative partnerships. You've got to go make the arrests, and they've got to go through the criminal justice system. And then you get the treatment and rehab piece of it, which is, um, that's been the big, you know, the big gap, I think, for a long time. And that's one of the reasons why I decided to kind of move on from police chief into corrections. When I was chief, um, you know, you see the same, same people all the time. You know, you lock them up, they go to court, they get convicted, they go to jail, they come back out, they're doing the same thing again. Right. And it's awful to say, and a lot of it is just generational. It's the same families. Right. You know, and you get, you know, dad and son. We got some of them in our facility. Um, so you, you, we got to try to break that mold somehow or other. So, um, you know, when I was when I was thinking about running for sheriff, it's like, okay, why? Why do you want to do this, Kevin? And then I thought to myself, well, there's got to be a better way. There's got to do something because we're, we're not we're not getting anywhere. And one of the things that really affected me was even during the campaign, um, a lot of times I would ask people in the audience, um, raise your hand if you're affected or you know somebody or a loved one that has a substance abuse problem. And almost every hand in the, in the room would, would go up. Mm -hmm. That's why I said so widespread. If there's anything good about this epidemic, it's people are finally acknowledging it and talking about it instead of trying to sweep it under the rug or hide it in the closet. Seems um, a little too late now, though. Yeah, but it's better late than never. I guess right. I'd come back with that one. So, um, so you know, now fast forward, you know, I run for sheriff. I get up there. Um, as you heard me on the, on the, uh, the, the, the video, the campaign pledge, um, you know, when we got up there, we, we took a look at all aspects of the jail, but we're talking about opiate right you now. You had a performance audit too, right? We want to talk about that a little bit. About Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. No, I've, I've done a number of audits. Right, I'm yeah, sure we, you'll get to them, but just on, on the, if we could, um, when we stay on the opiate right, yeah, for a yeah, few yeah. minutes. So, um, you know, there's a detox program up there, which mm -hmm. has been, uh, um, it's been up there for a few years. It's um, highly successful. Um, in, in for those that might not know about it, um, we work very closely with the drug courts in the, in the county, particularly Lynn and Lawrence, and I believe they're going to put one in Haverhill when they finish the current renovations up there. But um, the, the, I call them clients. The clients that are going to go into the detox program have to be referred by the court. And referrals go to the office of sheriff. We make the decision whether or not they're going to be in there or not. So we have, we have standards. We're not taking you know, somebody who's, who's been convicted or with a crime of violence. We're not going to take, you know, the, the drug traffickers, the heavy dealers, people that are ripping off the little old lady's pocketbooks in the first of the month after they get their check. We're taking the low-risk, um, relatively minor crimes of folks who are inside. 
um, who are folks who have been um, um, incarcerated, will be incarcerated. We work closely with, as I mentioned before, the judges in the, in the drug courts, um, DA John Blodgett, um, defense attorneys, they're key, um, police officers, and of course probation. Um, that all happens in the court. If the, uh, that group gets together and the judge approves it, they refer it up to us. And then we bring the individual in um, during classification, upon intake. We, we go through all their records and their history and what their issues are and try to come up with a program um, so we can tailor their needs um, during, during their, their period of incarceration. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't want to get too far off the track, but the detox program um, is kind of a self-contained unit within the House of Correction in Middleton. They don't, the, uh, they don't mingle uh, uh, with the general population. It's a separate building. Um, they can look out and they can see the regular you know, inmate population out there. But to quote one of the judges, it gives the, uh, the individuals a, a taste of corrections. Now they're there, they're living in dormitory style housing, so they're not in an individual cell. Um, folks that are in there generally have to detox. And for those you know, people listening might not know what it is, that's you, you're pretty much drying out over the first couple of days depending on your level of addiction. Because yeah, a lot of people when they get arrested, you know, they're addicted to heroin, they're addicted to coke, they're addicted to something. And then they go into prison, and then they go to jail. Yeah. And they, then they get arraigned, yep. right? And then they get convicted, yeah. but they haven't had anything yet, so yep. they're jonesing, right? Yep. yep. So they, they, you know, they, they got to dry out for a couple of days. So we have correctional officers in there who are obviously there for security. And they wear a, what we call a soft uniform, which is the golf shirt with the emblems and all that and khaki pants. Um, but we, we um, contract out to private vendors to take care of the, the health care needs as well as the mental health and the treatment pieces of it. So just to sum it up quick, it might take a number of days to detox, so, and there's some health concerns there, so we have staff 24-7 to take care of those health concerns. Um, and then once they over the detox part of it, then they begin the programming, which goes, you know, days and evenings. They're always getting some kind of, you know, talk or some kind of information, trying to get them to change that mind, make good decision-making, mm -hmm. uh, give them good decision-making abilities. And we're always thinking about, okay, so when they leave us, how are we going to make sure they don't come back? We're trying to tell people, come visit us, you know, because you're stuck here, but we don't want to see you when you leave. Right. You know, we want the goal is to release them, to go back to the community, productive members of society, stop crime. So what's your recidivism rate for those who detox? Um, it, this is a tough one. Okay, let me give you the success rate first because I'm obviously going to okay. give you the good stuff first, right. Tom. And I'll give you the, I told you a long time ago, never going to, you know, give you a, a smoke screen. But sure. um, for the men to, su to successfully complete the program is 87%. The women... 80%. Women have different needs. Sometimes the moms and there's family issues there, so they, they do it. Six months out, um, and I don't have the exact figures. I'm going to ballpark on five, but six months out, the recidivism, recidivism rate is about 50%, which might sound lousy, but if you compare that no, to that's other, actually, I actually think that's pretty good. It is pretty good. Yeah. It is pretty good. But a year out, it drops. It goes up, I think, the low 70s someplace like that. So that's one of the first things I did when we started looking at numbers and stats. We did some of the audits I know we're going to talk about. So what that tells me is we're not doing a good enough job as society as after when the individuals leave us and they go back to the community. There's, there's a gap there. There's a disconnect. Mm -hmm. So there's no resources for the, for the individuals leaving our detox. Is, um, isn't it environmental? Um, it, it seems, and I've read like a, a number of studies on this, and I'm not real big on studies because studies can be skewed however you know the person doing the study wants it, but... The, the, most of the studies that I've read on recidivism, it mostly has to do with going back to the environment they were in when they got addicted. That if they leave incarceration and they go to a different environment, they're much less susceptible to reoffending, to becoming addicted again. If they go back into the same environment, if you live on 
Bromfield Street in Lawrence, and you go and you get clean and you go to jail and you get, and then you come out and you go back to Bromfield Street in Lawrence. There's a like a ninety percent chance you're gonna you're gonna you know, you're gonna reoffend. So true. Yeah. That that's the issue. That's the issue. So let's talk about what we're doing to fix that. At least trying to fix that. Um, I was in Boston uh, a month or so ago on another on a panel discussion, and uh, Mike Bodetera used to be the White House drug czar under President Obama, I believe it was. Um, he came up with a stat. So somebody leaving the jail um, is 120 times more susceptible to overdose and probably die than someone who hasn't been incarcerated because of similar to what you just said. They're leaving. They're going back to their old environment. They don't know anything else. They don't have any resources, and that's it. So. In, in general, and I'm speaking both for the detox folks as well as the general population when they're getting out because we're trying to address the whole piece of it at the jail now. So when they're leaving, a lot of times you, people had need to remember that someone's leaving the jail. They don't have a driver's license. They probably lost it years ago. They probably don't have any type of an ID. They have no health insurance. They have no home. They, they have no food you know, availability. So they're basically going back to the streets, living in a shelter someplace, or going back to their old buddies who maybe will let them, you know, crash on a couch and then they're back into the drug environment mm -hmm. and it's the same people. So we're trying to break that, 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 that chain. So we, um, just a couple months ago in January, we created a new reentry unit, reentry transition unit at the Lawrence um, you know, farm. Mm -hmm. Actually, we're having a um, um, grand opening in a couple of weeks, so we'll make sure we, we give you an invite. Sure. We'd love to have you do some PR on it, but um, the whole piece of what we're trying to do here is strengthen our reentry efforts. So... Um, when the individual leaving us, they have, they have resources, or at least some idea where to go when, when they're in trouble. Um, one of the pieces that's helping us there, you're familiar with PARI, the Police Assisted Addiction Recovery Initiative. This is the Gloucester Initiative that started okay, yeah, three or four years ago, the ANGEL program. Um, I was not 100% proponent of the ANGEL program. Yeah, me neither. Some amnesty, but now I'm at the end of the food chain, so to speak. I'm in the you know, incarceration business. It's a, lot di it's a lot different when you see the reality on the ground, right? Yeah, it is. And, and one thing we got out of PARI, and we, 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 I had a long talk with John Rosenthal, who's one of the founders up there and um, down in New York City one time at a, at a seminar, um, and we talked and we, we worked out a thing. So we were able to get a grant through them to pick up a couple of recovery coaches. So we've been on board now for know, five or six months. Uh, uh, a man and a woman, so they'll come into the jail, they'll speak to some of the inmates prior to release, introduce themselves, hi, blah, 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 just kind of build some type of rapport, and then when they leave, we make sure the inmates are leaving with their contact numbers, where they are, make sure the recovery coaches know where the inmates are going. Um, generally speaking, we can't control where the inmates are going if they have wrapped up their sentence. If they go into a halfway house or something like that, we have a little bit of control as long as they're under our jurisdiction. Can you, can you make it a condition of, look, we're going to give you like a little early release with our ankle bracelet or something, but you can't go back to your old neighborhood? you got to go somewhere else? You can try, but we can't force yeah, them. Okay. You can't force them. They're going to go where they want. And the problem is, let's just say somebody you know, up in Haverhill decides to get out and they want to go to you know, Manchester by the sea. You know, they, they don't know anybody up there. They're not... They're, 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 totally going to be lost. At right. That. So they're going to go back to what they know. But they also won't know where to buy the drugs there either. Well, that's true. You know? That's true. But a lot of them, if they got the urge, they're right. going to go back with the drugs. Right. That, that's, right. that's human nature. So at least the recovery coaches are out there. So that that's a resource. Um, we've partnered with up with anybody we can find. We're doing a lot of outreach. Um, I, I brought on a guy to help me as a community liaison. So we reached out to like um, uh, colleges and universities. You know, we've got the, uh, the community colleges, North Shore, Northern Essex Community College, do programs with us. Uh, Merrimack College. Let me give you a quick example. Um, last year, we run a, uh, uh, an education program up there for, for, for the inmates. Um, the high set program. It's the old um, GED program for if you don't get your high school diploma, mm -hmm. now you get the high set. 
And then Merrimack College now comes in, and they'll do a uh, one-semester course on sociology, and they'll actually award a uh, certificate to, to, the, to the graduates. So you know, a few months ago, we were doing a graduation, and everybody in there, and we, uh, you know, one of the inmate graduates comes up, and it, it, this kid been around. He looks like the rough-and-tumble kid, and I don't even know his record, but I'm sure he's, he's seen you know, in, inside mm -hmm. of courts and police stations a few times and you know he's up there he gets his certificate from Merrimack and he walks up to me and he shakes my hand and thanks me and he's got a tear in his eye and I'm going All right, I'm the old cop I'm going is this you know legit or is this just right. you know smoking mirrors but the kid said to me he goes sheriff he says I never thought I'd graduate high school let alone ever get, a, get something from college it was like we just gave him a million bucks right so this kid maybe I'm hopefully he'll have a good chance of succeeding because he's he sees a goal and he's grabbed onto it and mm -hmm. now he's got something and we hope he does well but um, so we're pushing that. But when going back to the reentry program, we've partnered up with healthcare agencies. So if they got health issues, as I mentioned before, we get them on Mass Health. Uh, we're also doing the Vivitrol program now. So if someone's leaving us that has been on a um, substance abuse problem, for those that may not be familiar with Vivitrol, it's a medically assisted treatment. That's one of the buzzwords that's been floating around in the recent criminal. It's kind of like methadone. Yeah, it's different. It's different. Um, Vivitrol, and I'm not an expert here, so I'm just winging the explanation. Okay. But methadone, you're kind of on a daily basis. You're on for years. Mm -hmm. um, Vivitrol um, actually blocks the receptors in your brain, so you theoretically you cannot get high. It blocks those receptors. That's when you take heroin or stuff like that. It gets the receptors that gives you that awe, that high. Mm -hmm. Vivitrol blocks it. It's a shot. It's, you get it once every 30 days. And if you stay with it, you should be able to stay clean, at least in theory. So we give the shot 48 hours prior to release for those that want to do it. Then they have to get it every 30 days. So we've got those contacts now in the community, part of the re new reentry initiative. So they don't come back to you. you. You give them that one before they leave, and then you give them the contact for somebody in their community where they can go and they can get the next dose. Yes. And we explain all to them, just like if you go to the doc and you get a, a flu shot or something, they explain, you know, this is what's going to, this is it, this is some possible side effects, all this stuff. And we have the medical people do it, mm -hmm. by the way. We're not the medical people. We have the, the, the vendors do that. So they leave knowing what this is, what it's going to do, how it can help them. And we say, don't forget, 30 days from now, you've got to go to XYZ, you know, street and get your, you know, get your second shot. And that's where those recovery coaches come in, too, because mm -hmm. they get the schedule, so they'll call them up. Um, and even outside of that, we'll, we'll go to uh, faith-based groups. You know, there's so many different, you know, religions out there, faith-based, and, and a lot of them want to help. So and sometimes individuals inside an institution get, uh, get religion again, and so these folks will help them out. Mm -hmm. Community groups, social service agencies, public agencies. There's a lot of resources that we've brought onto the team. So when someone's leaving, we're trying to give them as many resources as we can. So when they get to the community, they're not by themselves. They're not crashing and burning. We have to take a quick break, um, but before we do, you know, it's, it, it's, it's interesting. You're a sheriff, right? And people think of a sheriff as a law enforcement function. But most of what we've talked about is not a law enforcement function. It's mostly like a health function. And um, it's kind of interesting how law enforcement has morphed in the last 20 years from dealing with offenders to trying to fix people. Well, we can talk about that when we come back because yeah. there's two sides of that, too. Okay. It's, a, it's a double phase thing. All right. You're listening to Paying Attention. I'm talking to Essex County Sheriff uh, Kevin Coppinger in Massachusetts. My name's Tom Duggan. We'll be right back after this. Thank our sponsors, by the way. Please go to our sponsors and, and, and patronize them. They keep us going. Let's thank our sponsors. We want to thank... Fred the Barber on uh, South Broadway in Lawrence. A $15 haircut. You can't beat that. 
Fred the Barber is sponsored by Ken DeLuca, who is a customer of Fred the Barber, who um, said, came to the office and said, you know, I want to help your show and I want to help Fred the Barber, so I'm going to buy a sponsorship for Fred the Barber. That's and awesome. At some point in the next couple of days, I got to go get my hair cut again. So I shop with the people who do business with us and my crew shops with the people who do business with us. So my writers, my advertisers, people who support our show, because they support us, they will do business with the people who are doing business with us. Then you get A&M Auto Body. We get our friend Angelo over there, Angelo Memolo over there, and uh, he does uh, great work on your car. So if you got a ding in your car, somebody hits you, you got a mechanical problem, you bring it to A&M Auto. He's on South Broadway in Lawrence on Inman Street. You drop your car off. You walk down half a block to Fred the Barber, get your haircut while you're waiting, and you go back to uh, pick up your car, and Angelo will take care of you. Um, so what's the address there? 341 Three f- South Broadway, Lawrence, Massachusetts. Then we get Joe Zingales, Rosanna Zingales Lopez from Century 21. They have been with us from the very first edition of the Valley Patriot. They've been with us from the very first Paying Attention show, which was in 1999, back when he was Remax. He's not Remax anymore. Now he's Century 21, Team Zingales. And they sponsor our bash. They gave a $1,000 scholarship this year. They gave a $2,000 scholarship last year. And that money comes right out of their pocket. That's not like they're collecting money from other people and just using it like I do. They actually took money out of their pocket. So I don't know why these guys love me so much. I really don't. But Twin Lights, let me tell you how, how dedicated I am to helping my sponsors. The guys at Twin Lights Security needed an extra security guard. Um, security guard. I'm not really a guard, but like an extra security guy to do private investigations and to do security for a certain thing in Boston. And they posted it on my page and asked if it was okay if they could use my page to solicit hiring people. And I said, you know what? As busy as I am, these guys sponsor the show. They sponsor the Valley Patriot. They give us $1,000 for the bash. I'm going to go work for these guys. So I called up Pat McLaughlin and I said, look, you help us every single time we need something. Whenever I put out a call, you're there. If you need an extra person in your short... I'll take the night off and I'll come work for you. And so I, ha- so I have been. I've been doing some work for them because they're helping us. And so there's no reason why I shouldn't be able to find a way to help them in the meantime. So if you need security or if you're getting divorced and you need a private investigator, if you have a business and you need a private investigator or security, uh, you want to call Twin Lights Security. They're based out of Gloucester, but they're very local. All righty. Well, all righty then. We love Twin Light Security. I was just telling the sheriff how uh, I'm doing a little work for them. Patrick McLaughlin and Mike Thibodeau over at uh, Twin Light Security. They're doing an amazing job. We certainly appreciate they sponsor the show. They buy ads in the Valley Patriot. They gave us free security at our, at our uh, charity bash this year. Um, everything that we do, they sponsor it. And I don't know why they love us so much, but we certainly love them back. Good. So I want to make sure we throw in an extra free plug for them. Sitting with me today is Essex County Sheriff Kevin Coppinger. We spoke in the last segment about the opioid crisis. And I want to keep talking about that because I think it's really big. Um, but before we went to the break, I, I kind of mentioned that you know, law enforcement used to be about just dealing with offenders and uh, locking them up. And it was mostly about punishment. And now it's really kind of not. And you said you wanted to kind of talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, a, a couple of things. And I want to go back to the video from the, uh, the debate. Um, you heard me talk about behavioral health unit. You're right. Law enforcement has transitioned into more. Well, everybody's familiar with the buzzwords community policing, and that's morphed into this other. We're almost social service workers, mm-hmm. you know, police, and obviously corrections to a point, too. So um, 
the, the point I want to make, though, too, our criminal justice system has become um, kind of a catch-all for um, issues in society where people don't know what to do with. And I'm specifically talking about, again, the substance abuse issues and mental health. Um, you know, when folks are, are, are high or out of control because they're on drugs, or like, we, like we know they commit crime, they get disorderly, they're rambunctious, people don't know what to do, they dial 911, the police are going to come. The other issue, just as, just as important out, out in the streets today, is the issues of mental health. There's a lot of folks who are on medication who a lot of times will not take their medication, and then they, once they're off their meds, they become disruptive, mm -hmm. either to themselves or others, and, and again, the 911 call. So then you put these folks into the system, and then what do you do with them? Right. They go to court. People are trying to figure out what to do. They may not have the resources to go into private care, health care, or mental health care. And a lot of times they'll end up in the jails. So our jails, our correctional institutions, and I think this is true for most of the country, have become the treatment centers for substance abuse and mental health because there's no other thing to do. Assuming so, you couldn't separate it out where you could have like one separate facility for that stuff and then one for like the hardcore criminals that you don't want interacting with those people. Right. right. You get people in there for rape or child molestation or domestic abuse. You don't want them in with the other people that are actually going to get out and actually, you know, that they, they maybe actually be able to be rehabbed. True. And, and like we were saying during the break, there is almost like two separate levels of incarcerated people today, one of which are the folks that should be in jail. And there are a number of folks who just get arrested, go to jail, and they probably should never get out. We see them every night. I, I, I drive the streets of Lawrence. I don't know if you've followed any of my live Facebook stuff, but we go out live almost every night in Lawrence, yeah. and we see an awful lot of them out there. Yeah. And, and those folks, you know, they're, they're committing the serious crime, the hardcore felonies. They need to be arrested and, and be put in jail. That's a no-brainer. Then we have all these other folks that we're talking about here, the low-risk crimes, the low-level misdemeanors the folks that are in jail um, because no one else knows what to do with them. Mm -hmm. um, and they, they become, you know, um, incarcerated at an expense to the Commonwealth and the taxpayers, don't forget. And we got to find a better way to better way to deal with them. So when you talk about, yeah, we're, like the detox program, that is a treatment facility, you know, and that's something unique. Um, we're also trying to deal with mental health now. We do extensive mental health screening at intake. How expensive? That's got to be so expensive. It, it's, it is, and it's, it's kind of a, uh, um, a work in progress. We were lucky enough we did get a grant um, not too long ago, so now we have a trained clinician at the, at the uh, intake desk go through a number of questions, part of the classification process. So we're trying to, to sort them out at intake, and then we've created a small... Um, separate unit for the mental health folks. So they're all in the same place because a lot of times with folks with mental health, you don't want to mix them with general population because they could get hurt or they could hurt somebody else. So we got to we got to be very aware much of that problem. And then once we figure out what their their mental health issues are, then again it's treatment. So we got to have the clinicians in for whatever issue it is, or if they got to be on their medications, make sure they get their medications. Um, and that again, going back to the criminal justice bill that just went through the Massachusetts State House in the last uh, several months, but got signed a week or two ago by the governor. Um, that's something we got to promote uh, more, uh, put more resources to, towards and, and focus on a little bit better. But that's that. those are the folks that are in our institutions that we really, in, in some aspect, shouldn't be there. They should be in some other place, mm -hmm. whether it's private care health or other state-controlled institutions that would better address that than putting them into a facility where there's hardcore criminals. What is the difference between an Essex County prison and a state prison? Um, Essex County is a house of correction, so you can only be sentenced to no no longer than two and a half years. So you don't have like lifers, right? You've got you've just, you, you almost everybody that comes to you is going to get out. No, 
No. When you first get arrested and before you get convicted, you're coming to the local house of correction. So if, if somebody goes into XYZ town in Essex County today and shoots and kills somebody, they get arrested, they get arraigned at their district court, they're coming to us pre-trial. So for pre-trial populations, we have, we have everybody. We have murderers, we have rapists, we have the armed robbers, the heavy drug traffickers, the sex offenders. We have everybody. Once they're convicted, they can't stay with us. Then they go off to state's prison, which mm -hmm. is like uh, you know, uh, Cedar Junction, the old Walpole, Concord Prison, Norfolk, uh, Shirley Baranowski. Those are the long term. That's where the life is go, but right. they start with us. So they could be with us a couple of years until they go get their trial. Um, the average stay for an inmate in, in, in Essex County is nine months. So those are the... That's a large turnover. Oh, it is. We How many prisoners? How many prisoners do you think uh, on a daily basis you guys have? Today, we're, I think we're about 1161 in Middleton, maybe another 250, 300 at the farm, 24 with the women's facility in, in Salisbury, and then probably another 150 going through the offices of community corrections. So those folks are actually out on probation, but they report on a daily basis to the offices of corrections, county corrections. So. You got a couple of guys here with you today. Who yeah. are they? Uh, the gentleman on the left is Dennis Newman. He's our chief of staff. And the gentleman on the right is Bill Renard. He is a public information. Oh, officer. he's the guy that I talked to on the phone. Yeah. He's the guy I want to talk yeah. to more. All yeah. right. Very yeah. good. Um, I, we wrote a big story maybe four or five years ago about the Sober House on Crack Corner in Lawrence. We still get a lot of hits on that story, even though it was five years ago that we posted it and we put it in the paper. Um, that's the, the facility that's in the corner of Oxford and Lowell Street in Lawrence. Uh, it, it was literally dubbed Crack Corner by the feds about 10 years ago because there was more crack coming out of that four-block area than anywhere else in New England. Um, people are still scratching their heads that it's there because the people who are there are there to get clean, yet they walk out their front door, and literally in front of that facility, there are people selling drugs every day. Um, the State Police Gang Task Force is staked out there all the time. DEA has done tons of raids in that neighborhood uh, on, a, on a weekly basis. Um, is there any kind of, you, you talked about your, you did an operational audit, like a management audit. Is there any thought uh, from the Sheriff's Department to better placing these facilities where, I mean, if, that, if my brother was in that facility and he was trying to get clean, I would be furious that just to walk across the street to get a Coca-Cola, he's going to walk by like five drug dealers offering to sell him drugs and he's trying to stay clean. Um couple things on that one. First of all, that, I didn't mean to throw you a curve. No, 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 no. Throw them. I, no, no big deal. That, that's one of the locations I actually looked at when we first got up there. My, my first question was, let's call the Lawrence PD, Lawrence Police Department, and let's get you know, an activity report of Lawrence PD responses to that location. Mm -hmm. And they were extremely minimal, which made me feel good. We're doing something right. Um, we've had um, conversations with, with the owner. I believe we actually changed owners since I've been sheriff. Um, they did some renovations to the place. Um, and we monitor those, you know, the, the, uh, our clients in there very closely. Mm -hmm. Most of them are on bracelets, so we know where they're coming from. And I haven't had any complaints from anybody as far as our people getting in trouble or, or breaking the law or something like that. Um, you know, is it in a tough area of Lawrence? It, it could be. Honestly, Tom, I, I don't have the statistics. Like the worst of the worst. Yeah, it's, I mean, I've been there. I looked around. I, um, I don't know Lawrence like I know Lynn. I know, I know you should we, come do a drive along with me sometime. <laughs> that would be a lot of fun. I... Um, you know, I, I speak to the chief up there. I speak to the mayor on occasion. Um, we work collaboratively with Lawrence PD when they, when they need help with particular projects and stuff. So um, if we can help them out, we will. But uh, um, so far, I, like I said, that, that location is, it hasn't been a problem. And no one's, I haven't heard from any outside Well, agencies. I was using that more as an example yeah. of more appropriate placement for people who are addicted to not be in an environment, going back to what we talked about earlier, not to be in an environment where it's right in front of you every day. I mean, that's... Yeah. When you're jonesing to begin with, you're tempted. And then when you're walking by people that 
you know, that are offering it to you, it's, it's kind of difficult to say no when you're addicted. And the other problem with that is it's a lot of not in my backyard. Nobody wants, you know, a halfway house or, or some facility like that in their backyard. Mm -hmm. Now, those locations, they were there. I inherited those when I came in from the previous administration. As I said, right now, they, they appear to be non, not a problem for us. Um, it is tough. And, you know, have I looked at the individuals and the success rate of the recidivism? No. But now that you mentioned it, we'll be doing that tomorrow. Excellent. Uh, that means just, that means I did my job. Yeah. No, it's, it's something that's another learning learning curve for us. But, uh um, you know, we, we try to get different locations in different areas of the county to, to, to put folks in, you know, going soft, but work with local officials. And, and some communities are fine, some communities are not. And I'm right. not going to mention them individually, but sure. um, all I have to say to folks is we have 34 cities and towns. We have inmates that come from 34 cities and towns. And whether they're through a halfway house or just a straight release or a wrap-up, as we call it, mm -hmm. they're coming back. Right. So we have to do this collectively with all 34 cities and towns. Because um, we, no one should be shying away from this stuff. This is reality. This is this is today's life. There's folks are coming back to the community that have had these problems, and hopefully, we've done our job prepping them for release with those better chance to reentry and the partnerships we're trying to um, make up with the ones in the, in the individual communities are doing their part, including local governments, to help right. us make sure we're all successful. Now, you've been the sheriff now for a little bit more than a year. Uh, 14, 15. Right. Um, you must have had an idea in your head what the job was going to be like. And then when you got to the job, I'm sure some things were what you expected and some things weren't what you were expected. Talk about some of the things that you didn't expect when you took over, uh, some of the things that maybe surprised you, good or bad, uh, and then what you did about them. Um, a couple things. I, I had a pretty good idea. Obviously, 30 ideas in, in police. Um, I had a pretty good idea. Um, I Going in to the, um, to the facility, I, 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 I knew what the sheriff's department did, but I didn't really understand it all. Um, so the first, you know, few months, um, we, we did the, we, we did the audits and let me just touch base on those quickly. If I could, we did a number of audits. First of all, I called, um, the state audit, Suzanne Bump and asked for a transition audit. I wanted, this is the financial audit. I've always considered myself a, a numbers guy. Um, as chief of police, I was held accountable to a budget. I got a reasonable budget from the city of Lynn and I never overspent it. That's taxpayers dollars. I take that very serious. So we called the audit, uh, Suzanne Bump, she was kind enough to send her team in. She's amazing. We she love had, her hair. They were, they were in our facility for seven months, and they looked for everything made a Z. I have not had their final report released yet. They have not released it yet. We got a little peek under the hood a few months ago, so we're anticipating that's going to come out any time. Um, but we know a couple things that weren't right up there. No, I won't say weren't right, weren't right, bad word, that we could do better. I'm you don't have to be diplomatic. No, here. This is a non-politically correct show. And I'm, I'm an old school cop. I'm a new politician, so I'm trying to learn this okay. stuff. But um, but Fair I and I even said this when I was before I even got into the political world. I just want to do things better. I want to do them right. So um, and we've we've made a couple a couple of changes in our in our fiscal department, just trying to strengthen the stuff up and, and, and do it right. Make sure that we're following the numbers, so to speak. So we did that. We brought in a team called uh, Creative Corrections. They're a nationally recognized audit firm. Uh, half a dozen guys from different backgrounds throughout the country. We brought them to look in to look at from the tactical and operational point of view how we should run the jail. They came in, they were excellent. They did some, it's the stuff like from like fire code, fire safety codes, God forbid we have a fire in there. They gave us some suggestions. They looked from how to handle the food service, how to handle security, the different levels of prisoners we have, how to handle some folks who might have to be um, not in general population but more into restrictive housing. They were awesome and we, so we've had, we've had that audit done. Um, we, we've done training. I'm, I'm a big, big proponent of training. I was in Lynn. I continued it up here. Um, I know you're going to talk about, you just asked him, what, what, one of the things, like, what surprised me? I, what thing surprised me is I think we, I knew 
let me rephrase this. Going in, I was surprised we weren't doing the level of training that I would like to do. So I immediately added another day in the seat, so to speak. We do 40 hours a year. We should be doing 40 hours a year in service training. It comes with the costs, and that cost can be, you know, pricey. So we immediately did another day of training in the seats versus online. Um, online stuff is great. I'm a big advocate of putting uh, offices in a seat with a live instructor so you can interact the same way we're interacting right now. There's a question, there's an example, mm -hmm. you need an explanation, you can do it versus trying to, you know, read something on the computer. So we put all, um, uh, all our sergeants, all our lieutenants and our captains and some of our assistant superintendents through this to give them another phase of it. Brought in another company to just kind of give them the old, like, I call it, we're changing the culture. Um, I have nothing bad to say about the previous administration, but I, I have a different management style, and I want folks to Thank understand. Thank God. I, have, I want our employees to understand what my vision is, what my, you know, my management style is, how I want to, th how I want to do things. Um, one of the things I'm a big proponent of is, I, I, as I said you know, several minutes ago, I'm a, I love information. I want to find out as much about an ins incident or an issue as I can. Before You're a data-driven guy, right? Yeah, pretty much so. So what are your goals in, in the next couple of years? We, we've spent a lot of time talking about, um, you know, some of the changes and some of the things that you've seen coming in. Uh, what are your goals now that you've looked at a lot of the data and you've had some of this peek under the hood on the management audit and some of that? What are your goals for the next couple of years? Where do you want to see the Essex County Chef? Like, two years from now, we invite you to come back yeah. in. Yeah. What is it you, that you would like to have achieved? Starting with, I want to reduce that recidivism rate, and one of the things I'm very proud of is, and this is one of the initial goals we wanted to do, is that re-entry um, initiative we just did. I talked about the re-entry transition unit up to, up to the farm that's, that's coming on board now. Um, that's huge, because I think that can make a good impact if we, if we do it right and get it off, and get it off the road. Um, as far as that, it's the, the training with the, with the uh, we're putting on more correctional offices. We run a couple academies. Um, every academy I go and I, and I talk to them, as well as our in-service, but I, I give them three words, honesty, integrity, and respect. If everybody would follow those three words, I don't care what business you're, you're in, this just should be something everybody should do, but you must be honest, you work for me. If you're not honest, if you're lying, stealing, cheating, you know, we're going to have problems, we're not going to get along. Integrity, you've got to be able to look yourself in the mirror in the morning and say, I did the right thing for the right reasons, and, and I'm an up-and-coming person, and I can do it. And respect. Treat people with respect. Now, you've gotten rid of a bunch of people for, not, for violating some of that stuff. Right? Um, we haven't got rid of too many people. A few people decided to leave on their own. Um, there was a lot of people who left during the campaign. As you said earlier, there were 13 of us running. So a few folks decided to just, they didn't know who was going to become sheriff, so I think they just left on their own for right. whatever reasons. Um, but we have gone in and we have, I think we have changed the culture. We have set the tone to the way my, my, myself and my staff want, want to do it. And again, those three words, but doing it more like this is how it's going to be done and this is why it's going to be done. We're not going in there with the real hardcore, as I said before. We're, we're moving the culture into a little bit different direction where I want to go. Um, we want to do it better and cleaner and make sure it's more effective. Again, so at the end of the day, we're, we're charged with you know, care, custody, and control of 1,500 individuals on an average day basis. We want them to, first of all, you know, leave us and not come back, but do what we can for those individuals coming out. So um, you know, there's always a you know, few people might get in trouble there. It's a big, a big agency. There's 630-something employees. Yeah, you're always going to have somebody. I don't care what the business right ever you're in. You could be in the smoke shop business. You're going right. to have problems with that. Right. So um, yeah, occasionally there's some, there's some discipline that's been issued. But you know, I've got to say this. I think I've been very proud of the people that, have, that are up there. Um, we've had one-on-ones. We've talked, you know, collectively, and uh, they've gotten to know me. I've gotten to know them. I think now we're into it almost a year and a half. They understand where I'm going. Um, I think it's it's gone very well. I've, uh, you know, I've got some good um, feedback from 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 the individuals that are working up there. I think uh, um, I'm very 
charm to have the staff, you know, the administrative staff that work with me. You, you know, we talked about Dennis and Bill, but uh, I brought in a special sheriff um, who's got an extensive background in the United States Marshal Service. He's really an expert in corrections. He's been a huge Excellent. help. I brought in a new CFO um, with a great background in finances to make sure we're, we're doing it, like I said, legitimately and clean with the money. Um, I've been to the state house, introduced myself in there to the, to, you know, to the powers to be to make sure you know we're working together, making sure we're doing stuff right with uh, whatever we need to do with the legislators and the uh, you know administration, finance, and you know everybody in there, and just trying to just trying to do it right. It's just um, keep it all about board. And as I you heard me in the debates, transparency, accountability, and transparency. Those are. Well, those I'm words. certainly going to hold you to it for you, sure. You said that. In fact, you no, I think I think Rich Russell Rich. said this to me a year and a year and a half ago at the at your mm -hmm. bash. He said something. I forget. You actually gave me a book, Rich, which is going to be Freedom of Information Act. And you said, you know, Sheriff, in a year, this is going to be full. You haven't called. No. So I say, if Duggan's not calling, I must be doing something right. And that's absolutely right. And I just want to say in full disclosure, I have a ton of people who work for the Essex County Sheriff's Department that are tipping me off on things all the time, as I do most of the police departments in the community. Uh, most of what I'm hearing from the people who work for you are really good things. And if that wasn't the case, believe me, anybody will tell you, friend or foe, I'd be climbing down your throat. I know. Um, if that wasn't the case. We've got about maybe five minutes left, and I've got, uh, I've got a couple of things that I really want to touch on if we can. During the campaign, there was a lot of discussion about female inmates and the lack of uh, facilities for female inmates. Can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. Um, as you probably heard me, I would love to see a regional facility for female inmates. Now, we have the WITS, the Women in Transition Center, up in Salisbury. It's low-level um, uh, kind of a re-entry uh, location, 24 women in there, um, no fences, no, no barbed wire, there are correctional officers, they are within our jurisdiction. Um, we do take them out to work on a work release program, but we're maintaining them then there. And then after that, we have the, 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 uh, the 42 beds for the women's detox in, in Middleton. So 42. A, 42, uh, 42 beds, 28 For all of Essex County. 42 for the men, 42 for the women, for all of Essex County, just the substance abuse, the detox program. So the, that's the only thing, place, we have beds for women. Other than that, they have to go to MCI Framingham. That was built in 1869. That's the state's female correctional institution. It is a state's prison. They do have a, a you know, an area for, you know, um, correctional, um, sorry, house of correction inmates from all the counties. But it's difficult. And with women, there are unique problems. Um, as I mentioned before, a lot of them are moms. So they want to, might see their families and having visits come during while they're incarcerated also helps with the reentry piece so they can mm -hmm. still, still see their kids and whatever and that whole bonding thing. So it's tough when they're out there. Um, we do our best to house as many as we can and, and funnel them down working with the courts and the women in transition centers. Is it much more expensive to house a female inmate than it is a male inmate? Um, not really. Um, you know, it's the same thing. We run about probably about $45,000 a year to incarcerate one individual. That's amazing. Yeah. That's more than I made last year. It's actually cheaper than a lot of the other sheriff's departments wow. in, in, in the state. I mean, we, we privatized a lot of our, uh, prior to my administration, privatized a lot of the, uh, the contracts with some of the, the vendors and mm -hmm. stuff. We saved some money there. Um, but it's, uh, it, it's, it's just different stuff. A lot of times there's different hospital runs. You know, for, we, have, we could have pregnant females. That gets a little dicey because obviously, you know, if a woman's carrying right. a child, we've got to make sure that's, that's all done in the up and up. But it would be nice to have a regional facility, maybe shared by you know three, maybe four counties someplace in here, but I don't think the appetite's out there to build any additional correctional institutions now at the state level. You know who the key to that is? Diana DiZoglio. Yeah. She's gonna be the next state senator yep. for this district. Yep. She's very attuned to this, to this issue. We talk yeah. about it all the time, yeah. I know her really well. Yeah. Um, you should probably sit down with her because even though there might not be an appetite among the public and yeah. the media, 
she could actually change that. She's, like she could go on it. She would go on like a whirlwind tour for about a week, yeah. and everybody would be talking about yeah. it. No, she she's been great. We've sat down on a number of issues. She's called me. I've called her on, on some other stuff. And actually, last year I had a legislative breakfast at the jail. I invited all the legislators, the senators, and the reps from the county, and you know, give them the old coffee and donuts, feed them, they will come, and give them a little tour of the jail. But mm -hmm. it was very good. I got to say, for all the all the elected officials in, in the county, they've been very very cooperative with me when I call, and they call us when we need something. Too, but they so. need to increase your funding. Yeah, we're trying. Oh, don't even go there, please. It's right. I mean, I mean, we're it's trying. Great. All these politicians come in and they like to do the tour and they like to do the the photo op and they pretend that they did something. But then when it comes time to actually voting for funding for you, it's like most of them are nowhere to be found. And I think shows like this and talking about it publicly kind of pressures them to step that up a little bit. I, I got to say, for the Essex County delegation, and now we, you know the budget just got the House budget just came out a week or ten days ago. Um, we did file an amendment. Um, you know, I had, uh, Representative Dan Kale and Representative Tom Walsh from Lynn and Peabody, respectively, um, were the first co-signers, and all the state reps in the county um, co-signed that thing after I called them and asked for their support. So they've been very good. Now it, it's it's kind of like moving mountains, you know, at the state house to get money for just one uh, sheriff's department out of 14. Mm -hmm. um, you've heard me during the, we heard during the campaign we had a, then a 13 million dollar budget deficit, and now it's like uh, almost 19 million. Oof. And it, they do give us supplemental budgets. It does come, but it doesn't come right. And my argument would be it's very difficult to run an agency this size not knowing what you have for yeah. money because I'm trying to be fiscally conservative, but I'm also trying to protect the inmates' rights, you know, the, the staff rights and, and safety and, and trying to reduce that recidivism rate. And There's all a that lot stuff. of components to it's what you're trying to do, and when you don't know what money is going to be available for you in three months or six months, it's very difficult to have a plan, right? It's like driving a car blind. You just, right. give a, you just aim it in the direction, hope you're doing the right thing. At the end of the day, you hopefully you don't go short. So I have one other question here before we wrap up. Um, we got a call shortly before the bash from um, a friend of ours who's a process server who was very unhappy with you. Oh. He said that you were pushing a bill at the state house to have the sheriff's departments do all process serving. And I didn't get a chance to actually look into that. Is, is there anything to that? Is, is, is the sheriff's department, is your sheriff's department sponsoring or supporting any kind of a bill um, to have the sheriffs do all the process serving rather than having like uh, private process servers, uh, constables out there doing that stuff? So I'm going to assume the individual that called you was a constable. Yeah, he was. Yeah. Um, that is a hot-button topic statewide. Um, I will ask you this. I'm, I'm not actively forcing anything. When I came into office, I, re -over I overhauled our civil process office just to, to make it work better. Uh, I had a new, a new director, brought her in from outside. We, we just trained them, got them all, got it all cleaned up, did it you know, nice, and, nice and legit and, and professional. I know there's been a, a lot of discussion, and I, I honestly can't tell you who filed the bill or who's doing it. There was something floating around the state house six, eight months ago um, to push the, the constables out. Now, I'm going to put my police chief's old police chief's hat on there, too. So speaking with both the sheriffs and the police hat, my concern is whoever is out there serving civil process needs to be properly trained and authorized. And over the years, I know some constables are trained, some are awesome, and some are not. And if somebody's going in to go to Tom Duggan or Kevin Coppinger and serve a, pro, a, a, process, a, a paper on you, I would hope that person is professional and knows what they're doing because sometimes those get ugly. Yeah. And if they go bad. I used and, to do it, so I know. All right. And, I, and if you know, so if it goes bad and you're not you know, properly trained, it can get real bad mm -hmm. and someone could get hurt. We, we actually served a, a paper in Middleton last year that the individual became a barricaded suspect because of, uh, honestly, some mental health issues, and we had to call in the Middleton police and some other folks in there. But uh, because we had properly 
people who were properly trained and authorized, we knew enough to back out. I would, you know, I can tell you horror stories when I was working in Lynn. We had guys walked in and locking people up, you know, outside the, the times they could have locked up and everything else. It's just like, it's got to be done right. Mm -hmm. You know, in this day and age, I said before, I'm a big advocate of training, whether you're a police officer or a sheriff, whatever, you know, public safety, you need to be trained and authorized and retrained every year. And some constables are great. Some are not, so I think that was the point. But I don't think that bill ever went anywhere in the house, by the okay. way. Okay, so I was I was just curious because yeah. we had we, we've got about five minutes left. Um, why don't we Why don't we just do a, a quick wrap up? You have been on. You've been the Essex County Sheriff now for about a year and a half, or a little a little bit less than a year and a half. Uh, we've talked about a lot of the opioid stuff, the legislative stuff, the overcrowding, the females. What is it that people at home need to know about the Essex County Sheriff's Department? What do they need to know about sheriff's departments in general? What is the that you guys do and what services that, that they can expect? Um, there's a number of things. There's a number of things we didn't talk about. Um, we're trying to do as much community service as we can. Uh, again, we're, we're a public agency funded by taxpayer dollars. So like this time of year, um, we do community service projects um, for um, municipalities we're allowed. There's sometimes there's some union issues, nonprofits. Um, we'll send the, uh, the inmates out on a work crew supervised by correctional officers to clean Little League field. This is the time for the Little League opening days. We'll yeah, we clean. see them on the side of the highways. Yeah, those are stick and picks. We call those st stick and picks. They, we work cooperatively with Mass Highway to clean the highways, but we'll send crews into the individual cities and towns and clean up parks, playgrounds, and stuff like that. So that's a service we provide. Um, the civil process we talked about, you know, we promote that because, we, as I said, we consider us a highly trained professional agency to do that. Um, but I think... I know during the campaign and even now since I've been in, I've been trying to go around the county as much as possible to just talk about what the sheriff's department does. A lot of people don't know. Right. They have, first of all, they had no idea how many inmates or what type of inmates we have. They have no idea the extent of our operations, and they don't have any idea of the extent of what we're trying to do to help people who are incarcerated. And that's the message I'm trying to get out to people, and that's the message we're going to try to continue to just push and, and, uh, and better, uh, make better every day. Great. Can we get you to do a promo for the show? You can say, this is Essex County Sheriff Kevin Coppinger, and you're listening to Paying Attention. This is Sheriff Kevin Coppinger from Essex County. You're listening to Paying Attention with Tom Excellent. Duggan. Excellent. We'll, we'll, we'll cut that clip okay. and we'll use it <laughs> during the... Uh, my name's Tom Duggan. You're listening to the Paying Attention podcast. We're here every Tuesday, every Thursday. Wow. We're here every Thursday at 2 o'clock at Studio 21 Podcast Cafe, high atop Two Guys Smoke Shop on Route 28 in Salem, New Hampshire. We want to thank Twin Lights Security for being a sponsor of the program and also for being smart enough to employ me. Um, we also want to thank uh, Joe Zingales, Rosanna Zingales Lopez from Century 21 in Methuen, Team Zingales, uh, Fred the Barber. Did we run that Fred the Barber clip during yes, the Yes, we uh, did. Excellent, because I wasn't, I wasn't listening. Uh, we have Fred the Barber on South Broadway in Lawrence. We also have our buddy Angelo, A&M Auto Body. So you go, you drop your car off at A&M Auto Body on South Broadway, you go to Fred the Barber, get your hair cut, and you go pick your car back up. You're all set, right? And then who else did we leave out? Uh, we left somebody out. Anybody? I think you got everybody. We, we, we everybody. Uh, Sheriff, thank you so much for coming. Will you come back? Absolutely. We'd love, to have you, we'd love to have you back. We're going to do a nice story for the print edition of the next Valley Patriot based on some of the stuff that you told us today. And good luck as the sheriff. Is there anything that you guys think that we need to know about? We'll be happy to promote it for you. Just get us some money from the Statehouse. Well, we can probably talk about that. <laughs> I, I have an in with Diana DeZoglio. She's yeah. going to be governor someday, that lady. Mel says go home, so go home already. Thank you, Mr. Jonathan. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts, guests, or callers of this program do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the Studio 21 Podcast Cafe, the United Podcast Network, its partners or affiliates.